Shabbat Shalom. I can tell people are still sleeping off those turkey comas. So they'll be drifting in here in a few minutes. Let's go ahead and get started and open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning just thanking you and praising you for all you are. Father, we thank you for this week that we've just celebrated, a time to give thanks and to remember our blessings. And Father, we just praise you for all the blessings you've bestowed upon us. We ask that you would be with us today, traveling mercies for all those who are coming. And Father, we pray that you would use this day that you've set aside as your holy day to speak to our hearts and to draw us into an ever closer relationship with you. In Yeshua's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. A few weeks back, Michelle did a wonderful teaching on the Knesset menorah. And that got me started thinking about the menorah itself, and which I meant to bring one over, so give me one second. Okay. And I didn't really recall having any in-depth teaching about the menorah, I really knew not a lot about it other than that it was a light source that it set in the tabernacle and the temples and that we still have replicas of the menorah today. But beyond that, really didn't know a lot about it. So I began studying. Then I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. Maybe I could do a teaching of the menorah and some of the other vessels that were in the tabernacle and the temple since there's no way I could do a whole class on the menorah, but guess what? The more I got into it, the more information I found. And it's very intriguing. And actually, there's more material than I can cover this morning, so we will have a full hour of teaching on the menorah. And I'll just let you know this, there is a lot more out there if you want to do some study on your own. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at God's command to build the, the menorah. We're going to look at the history of the menorah. We're also going to look at its purpose because it had a function. And to start at the beginning, let's talk about why God commanded the Israelites to build the menorah. There's a simple answer to that. It was for the purpose of providing light in the tabernacle. So it was a functional object. And that light would light that tabernacle for the next 40 years during their wanderings and beyond. The menorah continued to be used in the tabernacle even after the people entered the promised land. And it continued to be used in the tabernacle up until the time King Solomon completed the first temple. And that construction on that temple began in 966 BC. A menorah, and at times multiple menorahs, served as a lamp for both the first and second temples up until the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Centuries later, when the state of Israel was reborn in 1948, the Israeli people selected the menorah as the dominant symbol to be included on its national seal. So it was something that was very important to the people. Today, rather than performing a function, the menorah is a symbol that represents the presence of God among his people, the eternal light who illuminates his chosen, and through them he enlightens the world. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God proclaimed, let there be light. And that was before the creation of the sun and the moon. Light was essential for everything that Adonai would create. As John Gar puts it in his book, God's lamp, man's light, light is life and life is light. The two really cannot be separated. God's word in the form of man became the agent from which his light would emerge and of whom John declared in him was life and the life was the light of men. So stop and think about it. Light is the one element that we cannot live without. All plants, all life, all animals, human, everything, we all are dependent on light. Without them, we would cease to exist. Light is extremely important. And as I said, without light, we would cease to exist. But 
but still doesn't get at the heart of why this golden menorah was so special. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I've got two primary sources here that I've pulled information from. The first is a book that I referenced a few moments ago, God's Lamp, Man's Light, Mysteries of the Menorah by John D. Garr. The second is a book called Seeing Christ in the Tabernacle by Irvin N. Hirschberger. That book actually looks at all the various vessels that were used in the temple and the tabernacle. And small chapters on each, so it just kind of hits and, and then runs to the next one. But Gar's book really focuses in on the menorah and gives some excellent information. I also found information on a number of websites I won't get into because there were quite a few. In addition to talking about why the menorah is so special, I also want to take a very quick look at what its symbolism means to us today as believers. How many of you realize that the menorah is really more than just a functional object and symbol of the Jewish people in their nation? There's actually a lot of spiritual symbolism that's revealed by God through the menorah. And unfortunately, we don't have time to really get into it in depth. We're going to have to kind of hit it and move on. But I would recommend Gar's book if you're really interested in looking at that spiritual application. So let's start our discussion with three passages that talk about the menorah. The first one is Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. That's where we see God first give the command to Moses to build the menorah. He gives him explicit instructions about its design and purpose. And those verses read, you are to make a menorah of pure gold. It is to be made of hammered work. Its base, shaft, cups, ring of outer leaves, and petals are to be of one piece with it. It is to have six branches extending from its sides, three branches of the menorah on one side of it and three on the other, as you see here. We've got the center shaft and then three and three. On one branch are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer leaves and petals. Likewise, on the opposite branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms each with a ring of outer leaves and petals, and similarly for all six branches extending from the menorah. On the central shaft of the menorah are to be four cups shaped like almond branches or blossoms, each with this ring of outer leaves and petals. Where each pair of branches joins the central shaft is to be a ring of outer leaves of one piece with a pair of branches, thus for all six branches. The rings of outer leaves and their branches are to be of one piece with the shaft. Thus, the whole menorah is to be a single piece of hammered work made of pure gold. Make seven lamps for the menorah and mount them so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongues and trays are to be of pure gold. The menorah and its utensils are to be made of 66 pounds of pure gold. See that you make them according to the design being shown you on the mountain. So we see here that God gave Moses this blueprint of the menorah. And the fact that he was so detailed in this tells us that this item was extremely important for some reason. In fact, it's of the utmost importance in the sanctuary. Other items were made according to what Adonai had shown Moses in heaven. But... The menorah was the only item for the sanctuary that God specifically told Moses to make according to the pattern shown to him on the mountain. We tend to think of the Ark of the Covenant as being the most important of the sanctuary items because it holds the Torah. But guess what? Neither the Ark nor the Caribbean that sat atop it required the precise duplication that Adonai demanded for construction of the menorah. And remember, over that ark, those caravines set, and that was the seat of God. That's where God's presence manifested itself. But even that item didn't carry with it the detail that God gave for creating this menorah. So there's something very special about this menorah. Another indicator that it was very special is that it was to be hammered out of one solid piece of pure gold, which is Zahav Tahor in Hebrew. There was to be no soldering or otherwise piecing it together. It was to be made from one solid piece of gold. 
None of the other articles in the sanctuary were designed in such a way. Since the menorah is reflective of God himself and his word, and his word, as we know, became flesh and tabernacled among us, it stands to reason that having the menorah of one solid piece is also reflective of the fact that God and his word made flesh, Yeshua, or one, or a cod in Hebrew. Second passage I want to take a quick look at is Exodus chapter 37, verses 17 through 24. Here we learn that Moses obeyed the Lord's command concerning construction of the menorah. We also see that the vivid description of the menorah was repeated as if to stress its importance. So God didn't just tell him once, he told him twice. When he tells us something twice, we need to take heed. He made the menorah of pure gold. He made it of hammered work. Its base, shaft, cups, rings of outer leaves and flowers were a single unit. There were six branches extending from its sides. Three branches of the menorah on one side of it and three on the other. On one branch were three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a ring of outer leaves and petals. Likewise, on the opposite branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a ring of outer leaves and petals, and similarly for all six branches extending from the menorah. On the central shaft of the menorah were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with this ring of outer leaves and petals. Where each pair of branches joined the central shaft was a ring of outer leaves of one piece with the pair of branches, thus for all six branches. Their rings of outer leaves and their branches were of one piece with the shaft. Thus the whole menorah was one piece of hammered work made of pure gold. He keeps stressing that. Do you think that's important? He made its seven lamps, its tongs, and its trays of pure gold. The menorah and its utensils were made of 66 pounds of pure gold. And we have one more passage, and this one's a short one. If I can get it. To, there we go. John, chapter 8, verse 12, one verse. Yeshua spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light which gives life. I like the way the complete Jewish Bible translates these passages because it uses the word menorah. You see, in a lot of your translations, the word candlestick or golden candlestick. And that's used in the King James Version, one example. Although we see the word candlestick frequently in our translations, we need to understand that the menorah was not a candlestick. It did not hold candles. Instead, it was a stand that featured oil lamps with wicks for the purpose of illumination. Candles are a modern interpretation, but in reality they were never used in the holy menorah. The oil lamps of the menorah were to be kept lit at all times and not allowed to go out. They would be filled with the finest quality olive oil that was perfectly clear and free of any impurity. It was crushed from olives in a mortar instead of an olive press. Once crushed, that oil would go through a consecration process that required a full week. After that process, it was considered holy and set apart for a specific work. And at that point, it could not be used for any other purpose. In fact, it could not even come into contact with anything that had not been consecrated. As I said earlier, several times, the menorah was made of gold. And actually, it was made of some 90 pounds of pure gold, to be exact. That's a lot of gold. And it was worth a lot of money. To put its value in context, one talent of gold, which is approximately 75 pounds and somewhat less than the 90 pounds used for the menorah, at today's prices, that would, that, those 75 pounds would be worth more than half a million dollars. So this thing was valuable. And that's important, as you will see as we discuss it further this morning. It is also worth mentioning that the menorah is the only item in the tabernacle that was made from one solid piece of pure gold. By contrast, the other implements in the sanctuary were typically made with other materials, primarily wood, and then they were overlaid with gold. They were not solid gold. 
So again, we see the menorah set apart as being very distinctive from the other items. It was extremely ornate. And as I read those descriptions, you heard me over and over say, you know, bowls and blossoms and buds and this, that, and the other. I actually had one shaft, as you can see here, had one shaft and then six branches. There were 22 sets of buds, blossoms, and bowls, which is amazing when you consider that it started from one solid piece, and it was not pieced together, it was made from that solid piece. Even today with our modern tools, it's very difficult to do that. Imagine trying to do that with the lack of technology they had back in those days. It could only have been done through the power of God's Holy Spirit which Adonai endowed all the workmen who created the various items used in the tabernacle. And we see that in Exodus chapter 35. Verses 30 through 35 tells us, Moshe said to the people of Israel, See, Adonai has singled out Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Yehuda. He has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge concerning every kind of artistry. He is a master of design in gold, silver, bronze, cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving, and every other craft. Adonai has also given him an Aholiab, the son of Achisamach, got you some names here, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with the skill needed for every kind of work whether done by an artisan, a designer, an embroiderer using blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, or a weaver. They have the skill for every kind of work and design. So it was only through God's spirit that the craftsman was able to do this. Each branch had three sets of knobs, flowers, and bowls likened to almonds. And then the central stem, which we often refer to as the candlestick, when you talk, see the reference to candlestick in a lot of your translations, typically you're kind of referring to this middle section here, and the rest just comes with it. That candlestick actually had four sets of each. So you had four sets up through here, and then, and then three on each of the six branches. And I'm, I won't read this passage, but if you want to look at that, it's in Exodus 25, verses 32 through 35. We see three stages of maturity. We see buds, we see blossoms, and we see mature almonds. They're all present at the same time on the menorah. And that suggests to us ever-bearing and perpetual fruitfulness. And that's something that's only possible when we abide in Messiah. And incidentally, the almond tree, we'll keep referring to almonds, that is actually the first tree in Israel that awakens from its winter sleep, that awakens to life, and it blooms first. Therefore, the white almond blossom is a symbol of life and purity. The various parts of the menorah are the shaft, as I mentioned a moment ago. You can see it sometimes translated base, sometimes candlestick. That's that center branch and from it extend the six additional branches so that they come off of it. The almond flower bowls on the branches and atop the menorah. Then we have the capitals, which we also call the knobs. They're decorations that connect with the bowls, and they were said to be apple-shaped. There were three of these knobs on each of the six branches, along with the bowls, and four on the central shaft, and that totaled 22. So you see how ornate this thing was? I mean, that's a lot to put on one item of this size. We do not know exactly how the base of the menorah looked. This is kind of an interesting story. The Arch of Titus, which you may have heard about, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments, shows it as a two-tiered hexagonal base, while archaeological evidence and some rabbinic sources indicate that it was triangular in shape. Still others suggest that both of those are correct and that the hexagonal base was actually added to the original tripod to give it additional stability. Then there were the seven oil lights that were added to the menorah to provide the illumination. 
Did you notice that something was missing in those instructions I read? I know pretty detailed, but there was a very obvious glaring omission there. In all those instructions that God gave Moses, never once did he give him the dimensions of the menorah. According to Hirschberger in his book, which I referenced a few moments ago, the fact that there were no dimensions given is a reminder to us that deity knows no boundary and infinity has no limitations. In other words, we can't limit God. And even though we're not told its size, rabbinic tradition states that it was four and a half feet high, three feet wide, and with branches that were approximately three inches thick. There were no windows, no natural light, or any other lamp in the tabernacle other than the menorah. And that's because the menorah is a symbol of God himself, the source of all light and life. And that's interesting because if you look in Revelation chapter 22 in verse 5, it describes the new Jerusalem where we'll spend eternity in similar terms. That verse says night will no longer exist. So they will need neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because Adonai, God, will shine upon them. That God is light is well understood by the Jewish people as evidenced by the fact that they refer to the lamp that sits on the center shaft of the menorah as the Ner Elohim, the lamp of God. Even King David acknowledged this in 2 Samuel 22.9, where he said, For you, Adonai, are my lamp. Adonai lights up my darkness. Pagan deities of the world like bright colors. We see them all kinds of colors. Our God chose instead to clothe himself in pure white light. And as one example we see in Psalm 78.14, his divine presence, the Shekinah, is manifested as a fiery light to guide the ancient Hebrews through the wilderness. Various passages in Ezekiel, Daniel, and even the book of Revelation describe Adonai in terms of light and a flame of fire. In fact, one of the most significant and repeated metaphors used to describe him in scripture is light. We also see that the Messiah is referred to with metaphors of light, calling him a star and the sun of righteousness. Adonai was also a fiery voice in the burning bush, a pillar of fire that was light to the Israelites and darkness to the Egyptian armies. Both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah describe him as a consuming fire, an esh akat in Hebrew, a phrase that implies a magnificent conflagration. Think in terms of a bonfire. It draws everything around it into its flames and it releases enormous amounts of energy skyward. On a spiritual level this can be compared to Adonai drawing those who approach him into his all-consuming energy stream of his Holy Spirit where they are filled with the fire of his presence and extend praises heavenward. His fire never consumes those who are drawn into his presence, just as the bush in which, he, in which he revealed himself to Moses wasn't consumed. Those who are filled with his fire will be inflamed with passion and vision, and from them will radiate the fiery tongues of his divine word. And as we read earlier, the original menorah was made for the tabernacle. And scripture reveals that it was present until at least the Israelite crossing over the Jordan River as they entered the promised land. It's assumed that the menorah was also in the tabernacle after they set up camp in the promised land. And you can read about that setting up the camp there in Shiloh in chapter 18 of Joshua. The Bible also records that the Ark of the Covenant was moved several times during the lifetimes of Saul and King, excuse me, of Samuel and King Saul. But we see nothing mentioned about the menorah as part of those moves, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. In fact, the menorah actually disappears from the pages of the Bible until the time when King Solomon creates ten lampstands or menorahs. Yeah, ten, not one, ten. And these were created for the first temple 
And you can see that in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. And we also see it in 2 Chronicles 4, 7. And I'll read that one very quick. It says, He made the ten menorahs of gold in accordance with their specifications and set them in the temple, five on the right and five on the left. The menorahs are then recorded as being taken away to Babylon by the invading armies under General Nebuzaradan in Jeremiah 52:19, several centuries later as part of that Babylonian exile. And it, that tells us the commander of the guard took the cups, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, menorahs, plural, pans and bowls, everything made of gold and everything made of silver. So anything that was valuable, the Babylonians took from the temple. Verse 13 of Jeremiah 52 also informs us that he burned, this general burned down the house of Adonai, which was the temple. He burned down the royal palace and also all the houses in Jerusalem. Every notable person's house he burned to the ground. Since everything made of gold was looted, we can be certain that the temple menorahs were among those items. After the Babylonian exile, the temple was rebuilt into what is commonly referred to as the second temple. Ezra 1 uh, verses 9 and 10 mentions vessels, but says nothing specifically about the menorah. However, the new temple was an enclosed place. Again, no natural light, so there had to be some source of light there. So it can be safely assumed that at least one, maybe even more menorahs were present in that temple, even though they were not explicitly mentioned. And another thing that leads us to believe that is when you read Zechariah 4.2, there's a reference of a menorah there. The people who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple faced a lot of opposition. Add to that the fact that 80% of the Jewish population, and that included the craftsmen, remained in Babylon rather than returning to Jerusalem to face the hardships of rebuilding. So you can see what a difficult challenge those who returned to Jerusalem had in rebuilding the temple and reconstructing all those vessels. And it was during that difficult time of struggle that an angel awakened Zechariah from his sleep and presented a spectacular vision. The angel asked Zechariah, what do you see? And Zechariah said, I see. And behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with this bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. The angel then asked Zechariah if he understood its meaning, to which Zechariah responded, no. The angel responded these famous words. And I'm sure you'll recognize this passage. This is the word of Adonai to Zerubbabel, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai Zebaot. Incidentally, in Hebrew, that phrase is made up of seven words. And we'll see this theme of seven throughout the menorah. Those Hebrew words, if I can pronounce them correctly, lo, bachal, belo, bachoak, kaim, buachi. Gar explains the importance of these words in his book by telling his readers that several Jewish traditions suggest that Zechariah understood the importance of the menorah vision when he saw these seven words in the flames above the seven lamps of the lampstand. The message was clear. It was the same message that Israel had always heard from its prophets and sages. Light, that is God's illumination, conquers might. Zechariah was then encouraged by the angel and told that he would complete the foundation of the temple that he had begun. The prominence of a menorah in this vision is further confirmation that a menorah would have indeed been in that second temple. And if we jump ahead to the book of Maccabees, we'll discover that Antiochus Epiphanes took lampstands, and again, note that's lampstands, plural, when he invaded and robbed the temple. And that's in 1 Maccabees 1.21. Then in 1 Maccabees 4.49, we see that new holy vessels are made, which may also refer to the manufacturing of new lampstands or menorahs. Unfortunately, we're not told in the Bible about the ultimate fate of the temple menorah, 
What we do know is that a menorah was in the second temple at the time of its destruction in 70 AD when it was confiscated by the Romans. More than 10 years later, which would have been around 81 AD, the Arch of Titus, which commemorated the capture of Jerusalem, was constructed in Rome by the Roman Emperor Domitian. The arch depicted the removal of a number of artifacts from the temple, including the golden menorah, which you can see there at the left. Interestingly, even though some people believe the arch was created by an eyewitness to the looting of the temple, others point out that the shape of the menorah is different than what's described in Exodus that we looked at earlier. Several theories exist for this discrepancy. They're pretty interesting theories. The first, since the arch was built approximately 10 years after the, the destruction of the temple, the sculptors of the arch may not actually have seen the menorah with their own eyes, although some people believe they were eyewitnesses. And even if they did see it looted, it does not mean that they duplicated it exactly, opting instead for a simplified symbolic form. One glaring difference in this depiction is the omission of the 22 almond blossoms. The second theory, remember the temple was actually destroyed two times, first by the Babylonians and then by the Romans. The entire inventory of that first temple was taken by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And it's therefore possible that the new menorah, or menorahs, whichever the case would be, for the second temple did not follow the original design. Maybe it deviated. Afterwards, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, who we'll talk about a little bit more in a few moments, plundered the second temple in 169 BCE, and he took away the golden altar, the lampstand, and all the devices that belonged to it. That's in 1 Maccabees 121. Because of all this, the menorah stood in the second temple at the time of the Roman destruction in 70 AD, and that one may very well have deviated from the original design given to Moses. We don't know. A third hypothesis is that the Romans changed the design of the menorah that stood in the second temple during the beginning of the first century. Herod the Great had a positive disposition towards things Roman, so it may have been that he introduced Roman influence on the artifacts that were in use in the temple at that time. And another theory. This one is an interesting possibility. Just as with the original menorah in the first temple, that was believed to have been hidden by Jeremiah before Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, the menorah in the second temple was, may also have been hidden away. So the menorah that was taken by the Romans may have been a substitute, and it may not have been of the original design. Now again, these are theories we don't know. We don't know why there's a difference there, but it provides some good food for thought. Truthfully, we do not know exactly how the menorah looked because the ancient Jewish people would not make images of holy objects. And when later generations began making menorahs for private use, they intentionally made them different than the one used in the temple. There are numerous depictions of how people believed the original menorah looked, but we cannot say with absolute certainty how it looked. And if you go back and you do a really close reading of that passage, you'll notice something. That description is a little bit ambiguous. It tells us what needs to be on there, but it doesn't tell us exactly how to do it. So there could be a lot of interpretation there. Midrashic accounts even suggest that Moses himself found it difficult to follow God's instruction until he was shown the heavenly menorah of fire as a prototype of what he was to construct. The lack of detailed graphic description accounts for the diverse depictions of the menorah, both in history and even today, and if you look at the one at the top left, it's more like a V, it's like a series of V's than it is round. So a lot of different interpretations. Here's what we do know. The menorah that the Romans plundered from the second temple was displayed, whether it was the real one or not, it was displayed as a war trophy at the Temple of Peace in Rome, which was a pagan Roman temple that was actually paid for with the spoils taken from the holy city of Jerusalem. It remained there until the city was conquered by vandals in 455 CE, at which point it disappears from history. It's possible, because of its value, that it was melted down 
or perhaps even broken into chunks of gold by the conquerors, the Vandals. Other possibilities are that it was destroyed in a fire, that it was taken to Carthage and then to the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire at Constantinople, or perhaps even sank in a shipwreck. There's also a persistent rumor that the Vatican has kept it hidden for centuries with some putting its location in Vatican City and others claiming it is in the cellars of the Archbasilica of St. John's Lateran. These are all interesting theories, but the most likely answer is that it was looted by the Vandals in the sacking of Rome in 455 CE, then taken to their capital, Carthage, where the Byzantine army might have removed it in 533 CE and taken it to Constantinople. In fact, the Byzantine historian Procopius claims that it was carried through the streets of Constantinople during General Belisarius's triumphal procession and that it was later sent back to Jerusalem, where there is no further record of it. If it were indeed returned, the likelihood is great that it would have been destroyed later when Jerusalem was pillaged by the Persians in 614 CE. Now, to confuse its ultimate destiny even more, the Babylonian Talmud lists the treasures of the Jewish people that are believed to still be in Rome. You know, I said that was one of the theories. Chapter 41 of Psalm, tw um, Psalm 12 in the Avot of Rabbi Natan states this, says the objects that were crafted and then hidden away are these, the tent of meeting and the vessels contained therein, the ark and the broken tablets, the container of manna and the flask of anointing oil, the stick of Aaron and its almonds and flowers, the priestly garments and the garments of the anointed high priest. But the spice grinder of the family of, of, of Tinus that was used to make the unique incense in the temple, the golden tabernacle, or excuse me, the golden table of the showbread, the menorah, the ornate curtain that partitioned the holy from the holy of holies, and the golden head plate of the high priest are still sitting in Rome. Food for thought. Don't know. So its ultimate fate is a mystery that is yet to be conclusively solved and may never be solved. I mentioned earlier that the menorah also has a spiritual meaning, so I want to take a quick look at that. In the book of Revelation, John was invited to come up and view heaven itself where John saw seven spectacular flames of fire burning before God's throne. John was informed that seven eternally blazing lamps are the seven spirits of God that are sent forth into all the earth. John also saw Yeshua standing in the midst of seven candlesticks or seven menorahs with seven stars in his right hand and it was explained to him that those seven candlesticks were the seven congregations. And if you want to read that one, that's in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 20. According to the prophet Isaiah, the seven spirits of God that are mentioned in that passage are, and you'll see, seven candlesticks on the menorah. First, we have the spirit of the Lord. We have the spirit of wisdom. We have the spirit of understanding. We have the spirit of counsel. We have the spirit of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of God. Based on these seven passages, Gar surmises in his book that God's seven spirits are sent forth throughout the earth, illuminating the human soul with the light of God's divine revelation. And in reality, this is an interesting concept that does have some biblical basis. Consider Bezalel that we spoke about a few moments ago. That was that master craftsman who was commissioned to create the menorah based on the description given to Moses by Adonai. Scripture tells us that Adonai said of him, I have filled Bezalel with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. So we see an explicit reference to three of these spirits of God in that passage. Note also, as I said earlier, we keep seeing this theme of seven as we talk about the menorah. And there are seven branches, or seven candlesticks, if you want to use that term. There are seven lights. 
And as we just mentioned, we see these seven spirits of God. And there's another connection in Psalm 12:6. Says the words of Adonai are pure words, silver in a melting pot in the earth, refined and purified seven times over. The menorah was made of one solid piece of gold, as we saw earlier. And in order to obtain pure gold, ancient smelters subjected this precious metal to the refiner's fire exactly seven times. Thus, David's reference to being refined and purified seven times in the passage we just looked at. David's meaning here is this. The word that enlightens is a word purified by the seven flames of the sevenfold spirit. So again, a reference to that sevenfold spirit of God. The prophet Zechariah also used the smelting of silver and gold as a metaphor for God's refining of his people to a state of purity in several of his passages. One being Zechariah 13:9, which says that part, excuse me, that third part I will bring through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. They will carry on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and they will say, Adonai is my God. Malachi 3.3 tells us this, he will sit, testing and purifying the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver, so that they can bring offerings to Adonai uprightly. And in Psalm 66.10 adds, for you, God, have tested us, refined us as silver is refined. Testing and trials help strip away those things in our lives that shouldn't be there thereby producing character. James 1, verses 2 through 4 tells us this, regard it as all joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of temptations. For you know that the testing of your trust produces perseverance. But let perseverance do its complete work so that you may be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. We see countless examples in scripture, including Abraham and the binding of Isaac, we see Daniel in the lion's den, his three friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and we could go on and on. These trials and tests produced a stronger faith in these individuals, and they serve as an example to us all these many centuries later of God's faithfulness if we will just trust him. Additionally, the Holy Spirit is God's fire in us, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit to purify us and make us more like Yeshua each and every day. God will reveal the light of his presence to those who are pure in heart. Now, let's talk about the menorah's function and what it means to us today. When it comes down to basics, the primary function of the menorah, as we said earlier, is to provide light, to illuminate. There are numerous passages in scripture that deal with light and why it is so important. And one is Isaiah chapter 60, verse one. Arise, shine, Jerusalem, for your light has come. The glory of Adonai has risen over you. God designated Israel to be a light to the nations. And by nations, we mean the Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish descent. As Israel lived a lifestyle devoted to Adonai, Israel would illuminate the world, the nations, with God's word. And they would be drawn to God, just as a flame brings us towards him. Have you ever seen a moth in a flame? That moth is just, and that's what it does to us. It draws, it draws all those around it to the flame. But Israel could arise and shine only because God's light had risen upon the nation of Israel. And then Isaiah 42, six tells us this. I, Adonai, called you righteously. I took hold of you by the hand. I shaped you and made you a covenant for the people to be a light for the goyim, again, the nations. And then in one of the servant songs, Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6, it says this of the Messiah. He, Adonai, has said, it is not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Yaakov and restore the offspring of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. These three passages speak primarily of the Messiah but in some sense they also refer to the nation of Israel, since God appointed Israel to take his message of salvation to the world. Israel was in some sense a menorah to the world, 
because it was to cast its light out into the nations, dispelling the darkness by revealing the light of God's word and his message, the message of his Messiah to the Gentiles. Years later, in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, we see that Yeshua became the living menorah by the proclamation of Simeon. For I have seen with my own eyes your Yeshua, your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that will bring revelation to the Goyim and a glory to your people, Israel. Further, Yeshua declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8:12 in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah being a light to the nations. Then in John 9, 5, he told his followers, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The living menorah had indeed come to bring light to all the peoples, both Jewish and Gentile. Later, he would even officially ordain his disciples as such in John 5:14, proclaiming that you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Yeshua would return to his father, and then they were to carry on his work as the menorah, carrying forth his light to all men. They were to let their light shine and not hide it under a basket, and their light was to be seen by others, just as a city on a hill would be seen by many. They would be lit by the fire of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill all that they had been commanded. And it's to be the same with us. We are to go out in his power and be a light to all those around us, allowing his Holy Spirit to empower us and provide us the fire that we need to be that light. The fire of God's word appeared at Sinai when the Hebrews were released from slavery in Egypt and they were given the Ten Commandments. And again on the believing community in Jerusalem during Shavuot centuries later when they were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Today, synagogues have a continually lit lamp or light in front of the ark where the Torah scroll is kept. And you can see ours right here. That light is referred to as the Ner Tamid, the eternal light. And it represents the continually lit Ner Elohim that we talked about earlier, the lamp of God that was used in temple times. And that would be the center shaft of the menorah. The eternal light is often associated with the menorah that stood in both the tabernacle and later at the temple in Jerusalem. It is also associated with the continuously burning incense altar that stood in front of the ark. The sages interpreted near to meet as a symbol of God's eternal and imminent presence in our lives and in our communities. The near to meet was originally an oil lamp just as the menorah was. Today, however, most are fueled by either gas or electric light bulbs, and I believe ours is, yeah, ours is electric. Uh, they are never to be extinguished or turned off because they reflect God's eternal presence. Many synagogues also display either a menorah or an artistic, rep artistic representation of it, but that menorah is not really used for light, and that's something we'll talk about in a few minutes. <clears throat> Most of you are probably familiar with the Temple Institute in Israel. And if you've ever taken one of Rabbi Scott and Judy's tours, you have seen this right here. This is a life-size menorah that was designed by goldsmith Haim Odin. It's intended for use in the future third temple. It's made from a block of 24 karat solid gold. It consists of one talent worth of pure gold. And it was hammered from a single block with decorations based on the depiction of the menorah in the Arch of Titus, as well as the Temple Institute's interpretation of the relevant religious text. And I've been blessed to see that one myself. And it's, it's huge. Now, I want to shift a little bit here, because the festival of, festival of Hanukkah is just a few short weeks away. So I want to talk about the Hanukkah because that is the central focus of this holiday. Earlier we talked about the Babylonian exile and the return of the Jewish people. After that time, unfortunately, there were a lot of political changes that directly impacted the Jewish community. We won't go into all the historical detail for time, but there were various conquests and battles for kingdoms 
Jerusalem wound up under the control of the Seleucids that was led by Antiochus IV. For the first three years, everything went fairly well, but then Antiochus IV shifted his position and he decided to force civilization, as he termed it, on all of the provinces that were under his control, and that included Jerusalem. But he didn't stop there. He later went even further and demanded that everyone accept the philosophy and the religion of the Greeks. Not just, not just their lifestyle had all the way now. Many of the people in the aristocracy of Jewish society welcomed his efforts, and they willingly complied since the Greeks were highly respected. Religious Jews, on the other hand, were not so accommodating. Ultimately, Antiochus IV, who often referred to himself as Epiphanes, which means God manifest, because he had become to believe himself divine, demanded that the Jewish people accept the Greeks' gods or they face torture and execution. He set up a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the Holy Temple. He established worship to the idol that involved sacrificing swine on the altar. He also established houses of prostitution within the temple grounds, even going so far as to engage in ritual murder of those who opposed his policy of forced Hellenization, or the, or the, which is just a word for the Greek way of life. And we all know the story. Judas Maccabee, son of Mattathias, who would later come to be known as the Hammer, led a group of Judeans against the Seleucids, and they were victorious against their enemies. As they reclaimed the temple, however, they realized the extent of the defilement, and they began the process of reconsecration. This is where the menorah comes in. As we retell this story year after year, we often just kind of assume that the Maccabees found the beautiful golden menorah still sitting in the temple in its proper place. But is that plausible? Think about what we talked about earlier. The value of that menorah in and of itself is reason to question whether it would still have been there. But even more than that, the Syrians had had control of that temple for a long period of time. And almost certainly they would have plundered everything of value from the temple by the time the Maccabees arrived. According to the Babylonian Talmud, when the Maccabees entered the temple, they discovered that the minority had, menorah had indeed been taken by their enemies. So they created a makeshift menorah by soldering together seven hollowed Syrian spearheads. And at that time, spearheads were so hollow that you could actually put oil in them, and they would serve as a bowl. And they put lamps in those they put oil in there, put a wick in there, lit it up, and they could be used as a torch. So that's what they did. They soldered these seven spearheads together and made a menorah. This midrash teaches us a profound lesson. The very weapons with which the enemies of the Jewish people sought to destroy them were instead used to spread the light of Judaism. And using weapons for that purpose was not only a demonstration of the Maccabees' military victory, it was also a spiritual victory. The enemy spears were transformed into branches of the menorah, bringing light into the temple, restoring worship of the one true God. The half Torah that we read on Shabbat Hanukkah includes the famous words of the prophet Zechariah that we looked at a few moments ago. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4.6. So the message of Hanukkah could be put this way. Not by spears, not by guns, not by missiles, not by terrorism, not by political intimidation. These weapons of our enemies will not prevail. We will transform their weapons into sources of light and peace. We will create a menorah of righteousness that will inspire the world to a loftier and more spiritual vision. So now that the Maccabees had reclaimed the temple and set up the menorah, what do you think they did next? They began to search for some oil. They wanted some consecrated olive oil so that they could actually light the menorah, but they could only find one flask. As we talked about earlier, the oil lamps in the temple were to be kept lit at all times. They were not allowed to go out. This presented a dilemma for them. The oil that was used was of the finest quality olive oil and went through that one-week consecration process. So one day was not going to get it. They 
They had a choice to make. They could light it for one night, let it go out while they consecrated new oil, or they could just wait till they could consecrate, consecrate the oil. They decided to light the menorah anyway. The miracle is that the oil, which should have lasted only for 24 hours, continued to burn for eight days, allowing them sufficient time to consecrate new fresh oil. As time went by, the celebration of Hanukkah developed into a holiday that focuses on the Hanukkah, a nine-branch menorah that is not the same as the menorah that sat in the tabernacle and the two temples. Each night, an additional lamp is lit until all eight burn brightly at the end of the season. Since rabbinic tradition forbade the use of one lamp to light another, a ninth lamp, which is called the shamash or the servant, was added specifically for that purpose. The distinction between the two menorahs is, is important. Jewish tradition prohibits the use of a seven-branch menorah for any secular purpose. In fact, the Talmud goes further and prohibits the use of the menorah for any purpose outside of the temple. That's why a traditional menorah cannot be lit as part of the festival of light, even in a synagogue. It can only be lit in the temple, which is no longer standing. Since Hanukkah, a Hanukkah here has eight main branches plus a raised ninth branch, and you can see it in this image up here, that shamash light that's used to kindle the others, it is a completely different lamp. So there's no pro prohibition against us lighting it and using it. Today, synagogues and, have, and homes even have replicas of the menorah in various sizes. And you see, we have two here. We have this one and have another one just like it over here. It's twin. But look closely at it. Do you see anything that's missing? There's no light source. We have holders here, but there's nothing in them, okay? There's a reason for that. As I said earlier, the menorah is not to be lit outside of the temple. Since there's no longer a temple, the menorah cannot be lit. So instead of being functional, these menorahs are reminders to us of God and his eternal light. So I want to look at one final passage from scripture, and this goes to the book of Revelation. At the end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the Messianic community in Ephesus write, Here is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold menorahs. It's the theme of seven again. I know what you have been doing, how hard you have worked, how you have persevered, and how you can't stand wicked people. So you tested those who call themselves emissaries but aren't, and you found them to be liars. You are persevering, and you have suffered for my sake without growing weary. But I have this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Therefore, remember where you were before you fell. Turn from this sin and do what you used to do before. Otherwise, and this is what I want you to catch, I will come to you and remove your menorah from its place if you don't turn from your sin. Okay? The believers at Ephesus... We're doing a lot of things right, as we saw in that passage. However, they had lost their first love, and for that, they were at risk of having their menorah removed. Obviously, the menorah must have been very important to the people at that time because they were being told to return to their first love and their passion for God or risk losing it. This vision also reveals to us that the menorah was still a very important part of the believing community during the first century. As we learned earlier, the menorah symbolizes the light of God, the illumination of God's word. So what about us? Are we like the people of Ephesus? Have we lost our first love, and are we at risk of losing the light of God? That's a question I would suggest that each of us reflect on as we begin our preparations for the season of Hanukkah, the season of light. I want to end now with two paragraphs directly from Gar's book. Whatever the case may have been concerning the exact image of the menorah, there is no doubt that a lampstand featuring seven branches with seven lamps was the only light of the wilderness sanctuary. It is also undeniable that the original tabernacle lampstand replicated the supernal menorah and that it was designed by God himself. 
the menorah was and remains God's idea. Interestingly, the menorah is the only sacred symbol that has never been polluted or used for occult purposes. Did you realize that? Again, holy, it's set apart. Despite its significance in the tabernacle and the two temples, the menorah is now more motif than apparatus in the minds of the Jewish people. It symbolizes God's eternal vigilance to bring light and life to his people. It also demonstrates Israel's dependence on the power of light to conquer evil. The menorah, then, is a powerful living emblem of divine design, God's lamp, man's light. So my challenge to you is to go out into this world of darkness and be a light, to be a menorah to everyone you encounter. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today and thank you again for your love, for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for your light. We thank you for your word that became flesh and tabernacled among us to bring your light into this world. Father, help us to prepare our hearts as we close in on the end of 2019 and prepare ourselves for Hanukkah, the season of light, to really search our hearts to see if we have lost our first love, and if so, bring us back to you. Help us, Father, empower us that in 2020 we would be go, able to go out and truly bring your light into this world, transforming people, community, our families, all those we come in contact with because of your love and your light. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.